The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. I have 32. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. And I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Pray with me. Father, we sing in hope and in thanksgiving, praying that Your kingdom would come. Jeremiah looked ahead to that day when You would make a new and an everlasting covenant in which You would do some remarkable things in the hearts of Your people. You would bring the kingdom to within a person, giving Your people a single heart, a united heart, a heart that would fear You that it would not turn away from You for our good. That day was coming. It has come. And we pray, Lord, bring Your kingdom more. Let it come in fullness around the globe. Let it come a little more strongly and vibrantly this morning here in in the midst of us here. Right now, with people here in this room. Bring it here, I pray. Father, would You do a work this morning in Your people's hearts to bring the Kingdom to us in a more profound, wider and deeper way. That is, bring the reign of Christ more acutely to bear on our lives. Do a work in our hearts to unite our hearts around You and cause us to fear You that we would not turn away for our good. Thank You for that promise. Bring it to pass today, I ask You, Father, Son, and Spirit, for the glory of Jesus and for the great eternal good of His church, I pray. In Christ's name, Amen. This morning we begin the rest of the book of Deuteronomy. And like hikers who have just summited a peak and are now descending to the ridge line, we're still up high and there's a whole lot to see from up here. We're not down the valley yet. But in a very real way, that peak, the, the Ten Commandments, dominate everything around them. The Ten Commandments are the summit of the book of Deuteronomy. And in a very real way, everything leads from it, connects back to it, flows away from it, points back to it. We never really leave the Ten Commandments. It's always in sight. And one obvious implication of that fact is that we, the people of God, are clearly intended to be an obedient, holy, righteous people in light of that Ten Commandment standard. He's told us, you are my people, so walk in this way. Be holy like I am holy. Here's what that looks like. That's the message. And we don't just look at that for a little while in chapter 5 and then leave it behind and move on to something different as if God is temporarily, for some portion of His Word, concerned with our holiness and righteousness. It's His abiding concern. And the rest of the book will continue to address that. And in many places, like today's passage, it will give us help in understanding how it is that we, we individually and we as a corporate people, it will give us help in explaining how we can become that which we're supposed to be. Seeing that God is highly concerned for holiness in His people, highly concerned that we grow in holiness, or another word that we often use is sanctification. Seeing that God is highly concerned for sanctification in His people, we then become highly concerned for sanctification in His people. Something that is in us, and and most Christians agree and and get that. And, And one of my prayers for this morning, from this passage, one main thing that I've been praying and hoping for is that God would use His Word today to give to us clear help 
in pursuing righteousness, holiness. That He would use His Word this morning to give us some tools to help us in our fight against sin and for righteousness. So that's where we're going this morning. And our passage today is a little bit of a flashback as it closes out what Moses was saying in regards to what happened 38 years before back at Mount Horeb, which you'll recall is another word for Mount Sinai. He's talking about 38 years ago, God did this, and then we have a little bit of that closing out in our passage today. And then the last bit of our passage moves back to the present time where all the people of Israel are poised on the bank of the Jordan River ready to cross over into the Promised Land. They're there in the plains of Moab receiving this commandment from Moses. So we've got a little bit of both this morning. Let me read the passage, Deuteronomy 5, verses 22 to 33, the rest of the chapter. After I read it, then I'm going to pass back through it to make sure that we understand what's going on, what's being said. Then I'll make a couple of overarching observations. So let me read Deuteronomy 5, 22 through 33. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness. And we have heard His voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us. All that the Lord our God will speak to you. And we will hear and do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a mind as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But you, stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you, You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. The Word of the Lord. Verse 22 is transitioning us from the Ten Commandments, which literally in chapter 4 are called the Ten Words. These ten words God spoke and wrote on two stone tablets. And he added no more. Now Moses is going to add quite a bit more under the direction of God, but God himself audibly spoke just these ten words, which underlines them in importance. These came from the mouth of God, and then he caused them to be inscribed on two stone tablets that they might last. As was customary for treaties of that day, he made two copies, one for the the people and one for the king. One through ten on one tablet, one through ten on the other tablet, so that everybody was clear as to what the agreement was. He gave that and then said no more. And he spoke it to all of the assembly, everybody, men, women, and children, from the awe-inspiring mountain that was ablaze and covered in a cloud and in thick, ominous gloom. And out of the midst of the fire, that's verse 22, out of the midst of the darkness, verse 23, a loud voice, it says, audibly spoke the law. This is a gripping and alarming setting. 
And verse 23 says that immediately the people set about sending their leaders off to talk to Moses about it. Verses 24 to 27 recount that discussion. And because we have God's interpretation of it later, we know that, that this is sincere. They are sincerely, appropriately unsettled. Why? Verse 24. The Lord our God has shown us His glory and His greatness, and we have heard His voice out of the midst of the fire. God has shown Himself, has displayed Himself, has revealed Himself in all of His glory and His greatness. The glory of God. Now, maybe that word glory is, is a really religious word for you, and it's kind of hard to get your mind around it. So let's, let's think about glory for just a minute. The glory of anything in general is that which makes it excellent and wonderful and amazing and great and good. The glory of a sunset is that which you look at and you say, like, that is unusual, it's remarkable, it grabs me in here. Wow, it's glorious. That's what glory is about. And when it speaks of the glory of God, it's talking about that which is His excellence, which is remarkable and stunning about Him. And it's tied to His speaking. It's in every verse. Notice the emphasis on His speaking. We can imagine, if you put yourself in their shoes, you can imagine why the speaking was so significant. There was no tech crew at Mount Horeb. We all know what it's like to be in a really large gathering of people at a, at a sports event or an outdoor amphitheater and to hear loud music or a, or a public address system or of some sort where you could hear in really large areas really loud noise. But they would have known none of that. They would have known what it was like for a man to speak through cupped hands or perhaps through some other simple amplification system. But it would be amazing for us if something on the Wasatch Mountain here spoke and everybody in the valley heard this loud voice, the text says, that would be amazing for us. Shocking and alarming for them. A loud voice comes out of the fire, out of the cloud. They see the glory and the greatness of God because whoever it is that is speaking there is almighty. He's altering how nature works. And they are in awe of Him and appropriately unsettled. And they realize that they are flesh standing in His presence. The text uses the word flesh to emphasize humanity, frailness. Whatever that is, we are flesh. And we're not dead yet, but we are on shaky ground. Moses, you're closer to Him You go talk to him. Tell us what he says. We'll do it. So he does. And he goes and Moses talks to God. And God says that he's heard, of course, because he hears everything. And he says they're right. They are just flesh. And I am the living God. And they are in jeopardy every moment that they stand in my presence. It's right for them to have this attitude in fact, verse 29, oh, that they always had this attitude. Oh, that they always had such a mind, or the NAS says heart. Oh, that they always had such an internal disposition to fear me and to keep my commandments. Two related things there. If they had such a heart like that, it would go well with them and with their children forever. They're like that now. Oh, that they would be like that forever. Now, the fear of God is another one of those concepts that I need to explain a little bit. When I talk about fear, I need to be really clear on that because it's important and extremely common in the Bible, extremely common in the book of Deuteronomy. We've seen it already. It's going to come up again and again and again. But tragically, unfortunately, it is extremely rare in the modern church, which goes a long way towards explaining some of our problems. We live in what has been called in one famous book, a, a, we live in a Christless Christianity now. In a godless religion. Oh, we, we say the words, we use it, but there is no fear. 
of the one who the Old Testament calls the fear of Jacob. That, that's his name. We drastically misunderstand this. And so we need to be really clear about this. Fear, in its essence, is an internal heart attitude. That's what we're getting at here. Something that's going on in the heart. And fear in general is an attitude that, that speaks of the thing which is grabbing your attention. The thing you are drawn to, stand in awe of, are most concerned about such that it controls, it drives what's going on in here. What you're thinking about. How you're feeling. And then, because out of the overflow of the heart, you act. That thing that you fear will eventually control what you do and what you say. So the thing you fear is the thing that has you. It's gripped you there. Specifically, the fear of God is an attitude that begins with comprehending some of, we'll never know this fully, but that begins by comprehending some of the majesty and the splendor and the might and the greatness and the glory and the holiness of the One who is the living God and really is, really is standing right there before you, always. As you begin to comprehend some of that, it grabs you in here and begins to drive what you think about. It rivets you if you fear Him. And then it begins to orient what you're thinking about and hoping for and aspiring. It begins to direct how you are interpreting all of the events in life. The fear of God is profound respect, healthy awareness that this high and exalted One is not to be toyed with. He is great and full of glory, transcendent, the living God. Which is not to say that He is to be cringed before in terror unless you are rejecting Him. Then that is appropriate. But He is not to be cringed before in terror. But rather to be regarded with careful, sober-mindedness. An image that I often use, and I've used it here before, but I'm going to use it again because it works, is that of electricity. You should not be terrified, cringing, to come into a room that's wired for electricity. You're not terrified to go into your home that's wired for electricity. You're probably not even afraid to actually go over to the, the electrical box and reset some sort of a breaker that's tripped or something like that. You've probably done that before in your house. Not afraid of that. But as you draw closer to the current... Take the panel off of that box and you look in there at all the stuff behind there, all the wires. A fear should settle on you. Because if you reach into that box and you grab hold of that metal bar running right down the middle, you will shake for a little while and then die. Period. That electrical box and all the wires in there, it's a remarkable, clever, excellent invention for allowing electricity to run through all of our houses and do so many wonderful things. Electricity is good. It's what runs your air conditioner. Theoretically, runs our swamp cooler. It's what enables your refrigerator to work so that you can keep food. It runs the blower on your furnace so you can stay warm. Runs your sprinkler so you don't have to run around like a crazy man trying to keep your lawn alive manually. It turns your stove on, many of us, so that you can cook and eat. Electricity is excellent. What a wonderful, good thing. I love electricity. But if you go to that box and willy-nilly just start playing around in there, you might suddenly find yourself struck dead. Because it is not to be horsed around with. The living God should be feared by all flesh, 
Oh, that we had such a heart always to fear Him. To conceive of Him in our minds very carefully and to approach Him very carefully to keep His commandments. That it would go well with us and with our descendants after us forever. He says, I am a good God, but I am God. As C.S. Lewis famously wrote in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe describing Aslan, who is the Christ figure, of course he's not safe. But he's good. Of course he's not safe. But oh, is he good. The problem with... I think probably for many of us here, as I'm talking about this, some of us here are saying, what is he talking about? Which illustrates the time that you live in. Because there are two tensions that we need to hold with God. He is transcendent. He is the high and exalted one who thunders from Sinai and He is near in the still, quiet whisper. He is the one that the angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the psalmists write, God, my exceeding joy, my friend, the gracious one, full of love and compassion. He is both of these things. And for many of us, we have lost that one. And we do not fear Him in any sense. We know that He is good. And we are willy-nilly playing around in the box. Oh, that we had such a heart to fear Him. They do at that moment. And God says, it is right. So send them home to their tents. And I'll talk to you, Moses. And you pass along to them what else I expect from them. And so they do, and so he does. In verse 32, the flashback is over, and Moses is again speaking on the plains of Moab, reminding them of this connection between obedience and blessing. The text several times ends with this connection, reminding us of that. It's not purely a mechanical connection. God is not a vending machine. So so you stick in your obedience and you press a desired button and out pops a desired blessing immediately. God does not work like that. But there is that connection between obedience and blessing. When will it come and what form will it take? Who knows? But he's laying out a path. See the language of the path there? Don't turn away to the right or the left. Paul in the New Testament would talk about that, saying, this is the way, walk in it. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. There's a path there. And if you stray, we wander off into danger of discipline or punishment. If we stay on it, we walk in His blessing. Reminds us of that several times there at the end. God expects and requires obedience to His commands. That's the point, which is one of the reasons that we want to walk that path of obedience. God expects it and will bless obedience and He will oppose and eventually discipline disobedience, which is something that probably most of us are already generally aware of. Probably there aren't very many of us here this morning who think that you know, God really doesn't care what I do at all. It's, it's entirely irrelevant to Him. I doubt that many of us are there. I hope you're not there. So we, we understand that He wants obedience and righteousness. And what this passage will do for us this morning is it'll give us help in that fight. There's help here in addressing the fight against sin and the fight for righteousness. So here's the main point for this morning in a sentence. Let me just put it in a sentence to summarize this morning, this passage. The Lord shows us Himself so that we may fear Him and hold fast to Him. The Lord shows us Himself so that we may fear Him and therefore hold fast to Him. That's a summary statement. What I'm going to do is basically unpack that in two main observations, sort of breaking it in half. You hear there are two halves. He shows us Himself so that we'll fear Him, and then the fear leads to holding fast to Him. And I'm going to address that second half first. 
Here's my first observation. Now, the sentence for you. First observation, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of faithful obedience and blessing. The fear of the Lord leads to, it's the beginning of, it's the root of faithful obedience. That itself leads to blessing. And the basic thought here is going to be on the relationship between fear and obedience. But I tack on the blessing onto the end because I want to remind us of that. That's where the passage ends. And I want to say it a couple of times here so that we see it. So you get this part because there's, granted, there's a, there's a significant bit of heaviness in talking about the fear of God. But we need to realize that this is, this is salted with for your good, for your good, for your blessing, that you may live long in the land, that it may prosper you and your children. Several times at the end, for your blessing. The fact that God even tells us this is His grace to us. He's telling us where blessing lies. The whole thing is grace. He's going to explain fear leads to blessing. Fear leads to obedience, which is for your blessing. So I'm not going to say much about that, but I want to remind you of the blessing. It's there. It's kind of what the, the goal of the passage is, where it ends. You need to work on, though, the relationship between fear and obedience. Because blessing is at the end, we really want to be obedient people, and obviously God wants that too. Verses 31 to 33 affirm this. Moses teaches verbally to them and in writing to us that they may do them, the, the commandments, statutes, and rules. You shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. Then there's that path image. Don't turn off to the left or to the right. Stay on the path. The New Testament says that as well. It's a path determined and declared by God according to His standard. Pay attention and walk it. That's how the passage concludes. And verse 29 sounds the same note. Oh, that my people had such a heart like this always to keep my commandments. God wants that. It must sit deep within our hearts. We must yearn for it. But be careful how you chase it. And here's where I'm starting to turn to the the point, the connection, this relationship between fear and obedience. We want this obedience, but we need to be careful how we pursue obedience to God. Here often is our problem. We see something calling for obedience, a text or a preacher or a friend or or something like that, something calling for obedience, and thankfully a, a renewed commitment to it, grows inside of us and, and we want it, we want to pursue it, and then we embark on that pursuit incorrectly or in an incomplete manner that ends up being burdensome and ineffective. Perhaps I could say that we sometimes tend to pursue obedience too directly. We, pursue, we see obedience and we pursue it too directly. Like a man is cooking pasta. Let's say he's a college guy because the illustration will work better. He's new at this. Doesn't have many utensils and hasn't cooked very much. And so he's got the pasta in the water. He knows he's got to do that much. It's, it's going there and now it's time to get it out. It's going to overcook. So he looks around and reaches in and grabs the pasta. Very directly addressing the problem. Maybe you've done that. I have done that. If you lick your finger and reach in there really quickly, it doesn't hurt too much. (laughs) You can do that (laughs) if you're quick. (laughs) If you have long strands, you can hook it out. Maybe, though, he's got a little bit more than that. He's got a spoon that he's working the sauce with. So he takes the the wooden spoon. He's going to fish it out with that piece by piece by piece by piece by piece. They're sliding off the end. Still very directly pursuing with an an instrument this time, very directly pursuing, separating the pasta from the water. If he had a colander, or even just a lid, he could take the pot off the stove, over to the sink, and take the water off of the pasta. Pursuing the same goal indirectly. That's what most of us do, in fact, right? That's what works best. 
You know, you've got to separate the water and the pasta to pursue it very directly says, well, get the stuff out of the water. Indirectly says, get the water off of the stuff. Often we hear the law, understand what the desired end result should be, obedience and holiness, but we turn to it and pursue it incorrectly. That is, very directly. Sometimes by a straightforward application of simple human willpower. I will get this out of the water. I will control my tongue. I will not look at that anymore. Simple willpower. And some of us, that can work a little bit. If you have a particularly, exceptionally disciplined personality, or if you put a little bit of societal, cultural peer pressure around you, especially if you only deal with things that are on the outside and not the heart, which is what God's most concerned with, you can get that direct application of human will to work in some ways for a little while. But it will eventually fail. Because there is no human power to spiritually change. Which is the goal. Most of us who are Christians get that, see the problem that, and don't usually live there. But we still pursue this holiness, this obedience very directly. Sometimes it looks a little more like this. We want to fight against sin and pursue holiness, but we do it in reliance on God's power. We pick up a spoon. We do it in reliance on God's power. We say, I know I cannot do this by myself. So Spirit, God, be at work in me. Help control my tongue. God, help me to not look at that anymore. Help me to be more free with my money or, or less frustrated about X, Y, Z. And that, of course, is a significant improvement how you pursue this holiness, sanctification, because you're turning to God. You're identifying sin and you're turning to God and saying, God, help me. Help me deal with this sin right here, with this issue. But I would suggest that while that is a significant improvement, it doesn't yet quite see the whole picture. It's still a little too direct. Because what it's focusing on is the fruit. And it doesn't see the plant that bears the fruit or the roots that give life to the plant. It just sees the fruit. Think about this. Where does sin arise from? From where does sin arise? It comes from the heart. Sin starts in a heart that in some way has become oriented towards something other than God. Think of the Tenth Commandment or the First Commandment. They are the same. Something else has become before God. Something else has become the thing that draws me, that grabs me, that's beginning to rivet my attention, that speaks and I'm listening. I'm beginning to believe and I'm drawn on. It's controlling what I think. This is a similar language to fear, is it not? Something else is grabbing me and I'm moving towards it. And somewhere along that path, it crosses over and the sin, the seed that sin sprouts, begins to grow. You hear an offer and it starts to hold sway because it sounds plausible. And something else has become the center of the solar system of your heart. Something other than Him. And when that sin sprouts up, to directly attack it is a bit like either clipping off a plant at the ground level or maybe stomping it out or crushing it, plucking off all the bad fruit and throwing it away, whatever analogy you want to use there, but it's addressing the stuff that's just above the surface and it's not getting at what gives life to it down here. If you crush a plant and, and twist your foot on it and grind it into the ground, it will sprout up somewhere else if you don't get the roots. That's how weeds work. You must replace what's going on in here, what, what's going on at the root that's giving life to this thing. Many of us are longing for holiness in our lives. Longing to break with particular sins, to embrace Christ-like characteristics, 
to see love flourish in us, grow in kindness, break the hold that lust has on you or anxiety or anger. But begin to realize that your problem is not that you're angry that things aren't working out. And your problem is not that you're anxious that things won't work out. And your problem is not that you're tempted to lie or cheat so that things will work out. And it's not that you drown your sorrows over things not working out in a half a gallon of ice cream or a six-pack. There's problems there, but that's not your real problem. That's above here. Your real problem is that you don't fear God. In the sense, you don't revere Him, riveted to Him, grasping Him, oriented in your thinking and your feeling and then in your acting and your speaking. Oriented towards Him. There's not a controlling, consuming, attractive, wooing, sobering, amazing, awesome, gripping, glorious, great and mighty God filling the windshield of your life as you're moving ahead. Because if there was, you would believe Him and not all the other stuff that's flying by and lying to you. You need to think like that. The problem is much deeper than just the sin that you see on the surface. It's what you fear. And most of us, for most of the time, don't fear God. Not nearly enough. He's not the center of our lives. That's the, what the text points out as this helpful relationship. You see where that's in the text. It's in verse 29 when God says, Oh, that they had a heart attitude like this to fear Me and keep My commandments. And it's in the way that the people were living, fearing them as He evaluated, and saying, We will keep these commandments in total sincerity. Twice the text makes this connection. We need to see it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of faithful obedience and blessing. So the question, I think, obviously becomes, how do I grow in the fear of the Lord? If something needs to get changed down here beneath the surface, in the center of my heart, not just my behaviors, but something needs to be changed down here, how does that happen? How do I get after that? That's the second observation. We need to fear the Lord. How does it develop in me? We grow in fear. Here's the point. We grow in fear as God reveals to us His glory and His greatness. We grow in fear. Or you could put it the other way around. We are, we are grown in fear. He does it. We grow in fear as God reveals to us His glory and His greatness. This comes straight from verse 24 and following. According to God, the people have the appropriate heart attitude to fear and obey. That's the assessment of what they say in 25 and following. And 24 explains where they got that heart attitude. Behold, the Lord our God has shown us. He did it. The Lord our God has shown us. They were dependent on Him to do something. He has shown us the technique of accountability partners so that we won't sin. He has shown us anger management skills. He's shown us how to affair-proof our marriages. Three keys to loving communication. Ten tips for patient parenting. And now, knowing how to obey Him and hopeful for success, we're eager. No. 
as helpful or not helpful as some of those things may be, they are not the key thing. They are not what is essential. The Lord our God has shown us what? God has shown us God. He has shown, He has displayed His glory and His greatness, and we have heard His voice speaking out of the midst of the fire. To millions of us who are flesh, it's stunning. He's stunning. He has my undivided attention. Speak and I will do it. God has pulled back the veil of heaven and shown in majesty and in splendor, glory, omnipotence. He has displayed His rule over all of the creation. He's climbed up right in front of them and shown them God Himself in all of His godness. And we have to hold on to all of His godness. It is both of those things, His transcendence and His imminence. His high and exaltedness and His his near closeness. His holiness and His mercy. We need to hold both of those things in tension. God has shown Himself glorious. The NIV says the word majestic. And that draws them. God knows that's what we need. We need to see Him. We need to see Him in all of His majesty and glory so that we will fear. That's the connection here in the second point. So how does He go about showing His glory and His greatness? In the text, God shows Himself not just with a fire or with a cloud, but by speaking. When He speaks to them, gives to them His law, a revelation of Himself. And it is immediately effective and, get this, insufficient. Right? It's immediately effective and insufficient. They fear Him at the moment, but we know from history that it didn't take very long before most of them had entirely forgotten about Him. And had indeed strayed away to the left and to the right and everywhere else. And we could hear it even in what God says in verse 29, almost wistfully He says, Oh, that they would always have such a heart like this. But they don't. And they won't. They've got it here at the moment. But they don't have it planted deeply within them. It's only on the surface and it's going to rub off and I know it. They're going to run away into disobedience. This manner of self-revelation got their attention for the moment. Something else is needed. So the text points us in the right direction. It's pointing out to us some critical connections here about seeing God's display of His glory and His, and His greatness leads to fear and how fear leads to obedience for blessing. It shows us that. It points us towards that. But it doesn't go far enough. Because it also points out how this isn't, this isn't good enough. It's not going to work. This dramatic self-revelation at Sinai is going to rub off and leave room, leave need for more. God's going to have to do more. He's going to have to speak and reveal Himself in a new and better way to do a deeper work in people. He's going to have to do more than just speak His law from a mountaintop and write it on stone tablets and put it physically next to them. He's going to have to speak it spiritually and write it on hearts. He's going to have to do more than bring people physically before an awesome physical display of His glory with audible speech. He's going to have to spiritually display His glory. Speaking spiritually in the heart. He has to do more. 
He has to open eyes so that they can't just physically see a mountain ablaze, but can spiritually see a God of glory. How is he going to do that? When is he going to do that? You know, in a word, Christ. In six words, in the new covenant in Christ. Hebrews 1 says, In the past, at many times and in various ways, God spoke to us by the prophets, like Moses. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, who is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of His being, who upholds the universe by the word of His power, who has made purification for sins at the cross, who is seated at the right hand of the Majesty on high, reigning supreme over everything, everywhere. Behold that glory and greatness. Behold Him come to earth in a body. Behold Him cleansing the leper, healing the lame, restoring the outcast and the downtrodden. Behold the Lamb of God slain to pay for sin, raised, reigning, and coming again to judge the living and the dead. May God Himself show you this glory and this greatness that is in Christ that is the Gospel message, the New Covenant in His blood, which we celebrate with communion today. And may He, as you consider Christ, may He show you in particular the great glory of His grace. This is the thing that is perhaps most to be alarmed about in God because it is most unexpected. If you catch an idea, you catch it, it's a little glimpse that I am flesh and He is the living God. If you see that for a moment, as the fear rises in you, it will often begin to creep over towards that cringing. But what is most amazing is the glory of His grace that has made a way for flesh to be in the presence of the living God. Behold that peace of His glory and His greatness. So drawing all this together for this morning, to clarify the help that this passage shows us for our fight against sin and for righteousness. Obedience grows out of fear. Oh, that they had such a heart like this to fear me and keep my commandments. Jeremiah, I'll give them fear that they won't turn from me. Obedience grows out of fear. Fear comes when we behold the glory and the greatness of God. So we must be careful that we do not approach, pursue obedience, righteousness too directly. Not to say we should not attend to sin and pray that God would help us to overcome particular instances of sin. But if that's all we do, we're not addressing the core problem of fear. Or another way to put it is of worship. What are you after? What holds you? What's gripping you? We must see Him in His glory to change that. Where does that happen? Sometimes it happens in situations in your life. Sometimes you see God in remarkable ways at work in your life. And if that happens, so you hold on to it, don't lose it. Remember it. But most often, why He has given us the Bible is to show Himself to us. We are to read the Bible not only, not even primarily, looking for the stuff we're supposed to do. Frankly, you probably already know all the stuff you're supposed to do. So see it there, be reminded of it, sure, but primarily we are to read the Bible to find God. 
What's happening here is that God is showing us Himself on every page. Lifting up to us, even in the Old Testament, lifting up to us Christ, in whom the fullest display of His glory and greatness will come. He's showing us Himself. So we should, we should take up the Bible and read it page by page, by ourselves, in a group with other people, with an accountability partner if you have one. This is what you should be doing. Where's God? Who's God? What's He about? What's He like? What does His reality mean in my situation here? You'll find Him in the Scriptures. We have to be a people who commune over the Bible, looking for the glory of God, that we might fear Him and keep His commandments forever for our blessing. The Lord shows us Himself that we may fear Him and hold fast to Him. We're going to move towards communion now. We're going to celebrate what He's done in the cross. As we do, we're going to take a few minutes here now, by yourself, silently, just think, pray, evaluate where you are, what you need to, to take out of this, talk to God. And in a few minutes, I'm going to close it up, and then we'll move into the communion when the kids return. So pray for a couple minutes, and I'll close this. Father, we can take up our Bibles, and we can read them. We can look for your character and your nature and your your activity and your uh, self-revelation. We we can look for that in the Bible. We can identify it, but it still not grab us and and show you to us. We can see but not see. We can comprehend but not comprehend. We need You, Lord. We need You to reveal Yourself. And so that's what I pray for, Father, that You would do that. In my life and the life of my brothers and sisters here, for those here who don't know You, Lord, would You show Yourself to them? Give them some glimpse of Your glory. Draw them. We are dependent on You to do that, Father. And so we cannot reduce this to just some sort of a formula that we do X and Y and Z and and obedience grows up in us. We need You to be at work in us. And so I ask You, as Moses talked to You and, and asked of You, show us Your glory. If You don't, I don't want to move on. I don't want to go ahead. Lord, show us Your glory, I pray. Show us some piece of it now in these elements of the, the cup and the bread. Remind us of the cross. Show us Your love and Your grace in Christ crucified. Show us Your justice in Christ crucified for sin. Continue to work and draw us, I pray. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.